You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with our text this morning, which will be from the letter of Paul to the Philippians, I would invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll read the verses 1 through 11 and then 35 through 49. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. And then we'll turn over onto the next page and pick up again at verse 35. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men of one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and stars differ from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spirit did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man, from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven... So are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Our text this morning is Philippians 3, verse 17 to chapter 4, verse 1. Join with others in following my example, brothers. This is Paul writing to the Philippians. And take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as, as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, 
Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's been a while since we've looked at this book of Philippians together, but you might remember a few things about it. You may remember, and if you don't, I'll remind you, that even though this church was a strong group, and the Apostle Paul, it's clear in our text again today, the Apostle Paul is full of of love for these people, my joy and my crown, dear friends, my brothers. They're very dear to him, and it's a strong group, but yet they faced challenges in their lives, in their life, especially as a church, especially with respect to their unity. Paul was concerned that they remain united in Christ, that they remain united in humble service, that they remain united in obedience and in doctrine. Now, when you think about a nice bunch of genuine Christians, like the believers in Philippi, or even perhaps like the believers here in Langley, you might think that, well, it was such a nice group of people who are so friendly and who seem to have such a generally healthy church. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Why do we need to take all this church and doctrine and being united so seriously? Why does the minister get so worked up every Sunday? Well, it's because, as Paul makes clear in our text this morning, it's because a lot is at stake. We're not talking, we're not talking just about worshiping rightly, staying humble, and remaining obedient, and stirring up zeal, just because it might give you a boost for the weak. We're talking about, we're not talking about the difference between good and better, trying to give good people a little push along in their lives. We're talking about the difference between life and death. Between life and death. If we don't stand firm, if we don't stand firm in Jesus Christ, if we don't walk in His ways, the alternative is death. As Paul talks about this group that, that threatens the Philippians, this group that of many who live as enemies of the cross of Christ, he says that their destiny is destruction. There are two ways we can go here. Either submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and being carried along Him in repentance and faith and obedience, or death. Those are the alternatives. You may not think that what we're doing here at church or what you're doing in your life as you serve Jesus Christ, you may not think about these things in those terms. But it's true. That is what 
is at stake. Consider if we do not stand firm in Jesus Christ, then there is no life for us. Against the sin and the sinfulness that stands against the church, she needs to stand strong, to stand firm. We need to stand in the salvation of Jesus Christ because the alternative is that we fall. And how you stand, how you stand firm, the Apostle Paul says in our text this morning, is based on how you walk. No, this isn't the latest Hollywood exercise fad. It's the instruction of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How you walk determines how you stand. How you walk determines how you stand. We'll consider first the earthly walk and then the heavenly walk. So first then, the earthly walk. Paul is talking about walking here. Now that may not be entirely clear to you, but the the word there that you see in verses 17 and in 18, when he says live, take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. And then in verse 18, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. That word has the connotation of walking. Walking your daily life, your daily walk of life. That's the living that Paul's talking about here. It's about practical realities, how you live your life, what principles you you operate by, what priorities compel you, what ambitions drive you. And in this walk, two groups are contrasted. That's very clear in our text as well. There's Paul, and there are those like him, and there's another group, the enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul and his Uh, like, they follow the heavenly pattern, and he commends the Philippians to do the same. But there's another kind of walk, another way of life that's opposed to the way that Paul walks. That's the earthly walk. Verses 18 and 19 deal with this life. Now Paul, when he's talking about these people, he seems to be very familiar with them. I've told you before about them. I say even with tears, it seems like he knew them and he was upset that they lived as enemies of the cross of Christ. And so we need to ask right away, who is this group? Who are these people that live as enemies of the cross of Christ? And if you look at the description at first glance, it seems pretty obvious. These must be a bunch of libertines. Those who live according to their base desires. Gluttonous, perverted, sensuous, indulgent. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. It seems to be talking about the kind of person who lives an indulgent, self-satisfying life. But, if you take a second look at this group, you notice that it could actually refer to another group of people that Paul is often fighting against. There there could be two groups, you could say, that that are working against the Philippians and against other churches that Paul writes to. This group is a group that emphasizes law keeping. They're the opposite of the indulgent group. They emphasize law keeping and stringent morality. They're the Judaizers. 
Look at the description of them again in verse 19. Their destiny is destruction. Well, that's true for all who do not find their life in Jesus Christ. Their God is their stomach. The Judaizers emphasized the, the food laws of the Old Testament, saying you needed to eat certain foods. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. That could refer to what the Judaizers were always emphasizing, circumcision. Something that is shameful becomes their glory. Their mind is on earthly things. They're all about a formal, legalistic sort of religion. So you got two polar opposite groups. They don't like each other at all. One, one's legalistic. They're all about keeping the laws. The other's all about liberty and breaking the laws. So who is it? Well, it's difficult to determine which group Paul is writing against here. One thing we can know, the Philippians knew who they were. Verse 18, Paul says, As I've often told you before, and now say again, Paul has told them about these people before. Now, I believe, for a reason that I'll get to later, that Paul is talking about the people on this side, the libertines, the liberals, the ones who break the law, who live sinful, sensuous lives. But yet, the very fact that it's hard to determine who this group is, is something that needs to be pointed out. Because at bottom, even though these two groups hate each other, they can't live with each other, they're working against each other, at bottom, there's not much difference between the pleasure-loving hedonist and the rule-keeping legalist. On the one hand, they couldn't be more opposite. But at bottom, they're the same. How they live, how they carry out their lives, is as enemies of the cross of Christ. They deny the power of Jesus Christ and what He has done for them in His death and resurrection in their lives. They deny His atoning work. They deny His power to overcome their sinful desires. And they deny His kingdom, which is characterized by love and service. So, it's probably impossible to find out exactly who this group is. If you were to look in the commentaries, you'd find good, trustworthy explainers who come down on both sides. But yet, we should take a closer look at this group and consider it for our lives and our walk. So, going through there, in verse 19, there's four things that the Apostle Paul explains these people with. He says their destiny is destruction. This isn't just a wrong emphasis. This isn't something that's just excusable. Their destiny, their end, is destruction. This is serious. Their God is their stomach. Now, to us, this sounds like food language, but... We have to realize that in the Old Testament especially, the word stomach could have a similar meaning as the word heart. Talking about your desires, what you want, what you long for. Now this means two things. Their God is their own desires means two things. One is that you follow your desires wherever they lead you. That's what this group did. They follow their desires. They seek out the things that satisfy them and they make that their God. 
just like a hungry man follows the desires of his stomach. But it also means that they become a slave to those desires. They rule over you just like a god. They give you your marching orders. If you have no knowledge of or nor desire to live for anything else, then you simply live for your desires. This is a very earthly way to live. It's focused on the below, on the here and now, and to satisfying your desires. For this group, their glory is their shame. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they, they promote and, and think what's great is what everybody else thinks is shameful. But it means that they, they put stock in, that they take glory from something that doesn't deserve glory. It's earthly, it's temporal, it's not lasting. And so it becomes their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. They're focused exclusively on the things of this world. Either soaking them all in, or trying to control them through their man-made rules. They don't consider the Savior who lives in heaven. Who has died for their sin. Who has brought in a new and glorious kingdom. A better way to live than the libertine and the legalist. Ultimately, if we go back to verse 18, they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. What does that mean? How do they live? Now, this isn't, this isn't speaking about that they live as enemies of the cross of Christ, as in their sole motivation in all of life is to work against the cross of Christ. No, remember, it's talking about life in the practical, everyday realities. The way they carry out their lives means that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. They deny the necessity and the power of Christ's great sacrifice for them. Jesus didn't die for my sins. I have to do something to earn God's favor. Or Jesus' death allows me to engage in sinfulness. God will just forgive me later. That's his job. Jesus' death has no significance for you either now or in the future. It's just off the radar. And so you see that you don't need to be actively living as an enemy of the cross of Christ to be living your daily life as an enemy of the cross of Christ. To not embrace what Jesus Christ has done for you is to reject the cross and to live as its enemy. That's the earthly walk. It's a walk that's full of self-satisfaction and even temporal glory. It's a walk that might feel good for a while, but that ultimately ends in destruction. Now, contrasted starkly with this earthly way of life is the heavenly walk which Paul talks about beginning in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Actually, it's the same lifestyle that Paul was talking about in verse 17 when he says, join with others in following my example and take notice of those who live, who walk according to the pattern we gave you. Just as there's many who live as enemies of the cross of Christ, Paul's saying, there's many who live in in this new life, the heavenly life. 
They live an exemplary life. It's not a perfect life. Perhaps it's not even a very good life by the standards of this world. But they're citizens of heaven. They serve Jesus Christ in their daily life. And they look forward with hope to the day of judgment and to the final resurrection. Paul is saying there's lots of people to look for for an example of how to live your lives. There's lots of leaders around. Well, aren't we always looking for leadership? Teenagers are always looking for leadership. You hear things like, I want to be different. Just like my favorite movie star and everyone else who follows him or her. Business professionals look to the Stephen Coveys of the world. Athletes look to sports stars. People look to Oprah, Dr. Phil, whoever. They'll turn on the TV, see someone they've never heard from before, and look to that person for leadership and advice for how to live their lives. A necessary characteristic of any self-help or motivational speaker is that you need to uh, present a strong, dynamic image. Why? So that people will follow you. People are looking for leadership. Well, Paul says, look for your leadership closer to home. Follow the lives of men and women in our church who follow Jesus Christ. Who follow Him faithfully and with integrity. So what do these people look like? How should we then live? Well, as I said, there's a contrast between two lifestyles, the heavenly life and the earthly life. Two life focuses. We'll look at these contrasts to determine what that heavenly life looks like. The earthly walk, as we said, is precisely that. It's earthly. It's focused on the present, and it's focused down on what is on earth. It doesn't have a long-range view. But surprisingly, even the heavenly walk is focused on the present, yet from a different perspective. You see, it's not as though this heavenly walk teleports us out of, out of our earthly reality into some dreamy fairy tale land while the world crumbles around us. That's not what it is to walk the heavenly walk. That's the kind of walk that was criticized, uh, that was spoken of in that old criticism, you've probably heard it before, where that person is so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. I'd argue that that person was not properly heavenly-minded. The more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you do. Why? Because, as Paul says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. We need to understand what that means. Our citizenship is in heaven. And in order to understand what that means, you have to understand the situation that the Philippian church was in, or that the city of Philippi, rather, was in. Ever since about 43 before the birth of Christ, the Philippians helped out Caesar Augustus in his fight against those who had assassinated Julius Caesar. They helped him out. He eventually became the ruler of the whole empire. And so he gave to the city of Philippi a special status. Philippi, even though it's far away from Rome... The Philippian, uh, the citizens of Philippi became citizens of Rome. And that was a special status. There was tax breaks. Uh, there was all kinds of money from the emperor that would come your way. It was a generous gift, that special status. 
And so in response, the Philippians modeled their city after Rome. They were far away from Rome, but it was like a Rome in the east. Had a similar government. They had similar architecture. People even dressed like the people in Rome. So that's what citizenship meant for the Philippians. I think that helps us to understand what citizenship in heaven means for us. It means that you stay where you are. You're still a Philippian. You're still a Langlian. But instead of looking to Rome for your model, for how to live your life, for how to dress, for how to walk, for how to act, you look to heaven and to Jesus Christ. You've been called into a greater kingdom. Citizenship in Rome is good. Citizenship in heaven is even better. And you look, you work out your new calling and your new status in your life. You reflect that heavenly citizenship in your life, just like Philippi reflected Rome in her life. How do you do that? Well, that's the case that Paul has been building throughout this whole letter. It means that you're a humble and obedient servant, just like the man from heaven. It means that you're committed to the unity of the church, just like Jesus Christ. It means that you shine with the light of the gospel in the moral darkness all around you. You don't, in this life, distance yourself from earthly things in order to participate in heavenly things. Not at all. You bring the things of heaven into your earthly life. You give everyone who talks to you a little taste of heaven by what you say and how you act. You walk, the pattern of your life visibly displays and promotes the cross of Christ. Actually, when you're heavenly minded, when you're walking that heavenly walk, then you become more concerned for this world. Because you know that this world will keep going. And that it will be renewed. And that one day it will be joined with heaven. So the first contrast is not between, or is between heaven and earth, not between the present and the future. Since with our heavenly minds, we are focused on the present and on this world. The second contrast, though, is between rulers. Those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ, Paul said in verse 18, are ruled by their stomach. Their God is their stomach. Their desires are their God. Now, Paul was saying that that's how that group lived. Their God was their stomach. But that was the way the whole culture lived. And it was led by their ruler himself, Caesar Nero, King Nero. And Paul is squarely putting the lordship of Jesus Christ over against the lordship of Caesar for the Philippians. You see, and this is why I think that Paul was referring to the the, the moral hedonists, the self-indulgent immoralists in the, in the previous verses, it's because here he contrasts Jesus Christ with Nero Caesar, and there couldn't be a greater contrast. He contrasts them when he calls Jesus Savior. In the world that the Philippians lived in, the Savior was Caesar. 
They would often call Caesar their savior. Cities abroad all over the Roman Empire would look to Caesar to save them from their enemies if they needed help. They'd look to Caesar to give them gifts when they needed them. The idea was, even though he lived far away, he would come and help his people. Well, in the days that Paul was imprisoned in Rome, he was close to that Caesar. And he knew that that Caesar was a self-indulgent hedonist who lived and promoted an immoral and a sensuous and a decadent life. Well, Paul's saying, our Savior and Lord is not Nero. It's Jesus Christ. And therefore, he's saying, our lives don't reflect the wickedness of Nero. Everyone might be following Nero's example, thinking that this is the way to live. But we follow another example. We don't look to the wickedness of Nero. We look to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We live in light of the day when He's going to rescue our body of death and the sin-wearied world. So the second contrast is between rulers. The third contrast that we see is that the Savior Jesus Christ is a true and powerful Lord. So the third contrast is between our end. The end of those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ is destruction. Destruction. That sounds blunt. That sounds cold. Final. But that's the truth. And the truth sometimes can be chilling. But the good news for us, and the good news for all of those who repent of living a life against the cross, who repent of rejecting the cross, and who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, is that Jesus Christ will finally, ultimately, save us. He'll transform our bodies to become like His glorious body. Paul doesn't go into too much more detail here about what this is going to be, but he does in 1 Corinthians 15. He says we will all be changed. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead and of the eternal life in God's kingdom on the new earth. Our bodies will become like Christ's new glorified body. What is mortal now will become immortal. What is weak now will become strong. What's prone to failure now will become indestructible. What is shameful now will become glorious. You see that? The glory of Christ's enemies, that temporal glory, is their shame. Their glory is fleeting, it's false, and it's corrupted because it's not grounded in the cross of Christ. But our glory awaits us even though now we suffer against sin and evil. Even though now our lives are full of setbacks and failures, of health problems, of grief. Even though the memories of sins long past and shameful deeds still cling to us. A glorious future awaits us. A new and wonderful and glorious body that's transformed that's sanctified, that's glorified. Through hoping in Jesus Christ, by looking to Him for our leadership and walking in His ways, we move from shame 
to glory. So this, brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, is the way to walk. It's the way to live, the heavenly way. Live as citizens of heaven and bring the priorities of heaven to bear on our world. Live as a servant of Jesus Christ, serving Him exclusively. And live in the hope of glory. Know that it's not all about the here and now, the failures and the setbacks and the shame. Live in the hope of glory. In the hope of a resurrected and transformed body. That, the Spirit and the Word of God tell us this morning, is the way to live. And that then is the way to stand firm. How? In the Lord Jesus Christ. What about the temptations that surround us? What about the worldliness that always seems to be crouching at the door? What about a whole culture that's following ways of immorality? What about the struggles that we face? What about the setbacks? The way to stand is to walk. Walk in the ways of Jesus Christ. Walk in the heavenly ways, every day in service to Him, and full of hope. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.